As a woman who started her career as a psychotherapist intending to help others build mental strength, she never imagined how much she was going to need to build her own mental muscles. Her mom passed away when she was just 23. Her husband died when she was just 26. Losing the two most important people in her life made her uh, interest in mental strength personal. She wanted to know why some people felt stuck after they went through hard times and why other people emerged from hardship feeling stronger than ever. As she studied mental strength, she realized that mentally strong people don't just have good habits. They also avoid unhealthy habits that could hold them back. International best-selling author, prominent psychotherapist, and licensed clinical social worker Amy Morin joins us now for a conversation on how we all can cultivate mental strength in our daily lives. Amy, good to have you on the program. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you on. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for the time. Uh, i got an hour here, so we're going to unpack a lot of stuff in the next 60 minutes here. Let me start with this. As I just mentioned a moment ago, of course, uh, and the audience heard, that is a lot, a lot to go through when you're in your 20s. Take me back, if you will. Yeah, I had just started my career as a therapist, and I thought, "Whoa, here we go. Like, life's going to be pretty good. And it was shortly after that that my mom passed away. And it was sudden and unexpected. She had a brain aneurysm, so it was one of those experiences where she was seemingly fine one minute and gone the next. And as a therapist, I had learned a lot about, okay, you're supposed to teach people what they're doing well, build on their strengths. But I really realized as I was going through my own grief, like, sometimes it just takes one or two bad habits to stay stuck. And so I really focused on that. Like, okay, what do I not want to do as I'm grieving? And then I'm glad that I was already working on that because as you say, when I was 26, my, my husband had a heart attack. Mm. Obviously when you're 26, you're not supposed to have a heart attack. It was completely unexpected. Um, and another one of those situations where he was seemingly fine one minute and gone the next. And to wrap my brain around that, like the two most important people to me in my entire life were just up and gone in like an instant took so much work. It was such a painful process. And I had to figure out, like, how do you get through this? How do you move forward in life? And a lot of those skills and things I was teaching people in my therapy office were helpful. But again, it just reinforced to me that sometimes it just takes one counterproductive bad habit to, to stay stuck. And really, the last thing I wanted when I was having a really rough time in life was to then have like a long list of things I had to do. But I thought, all right, if I have a not to do list, I can handle that as long mm -hmm. as I wake up today and say, just don't do this certain thing and you'll be okay. It seemed to be a lot more manageable than thinking, okay, I have 101 things I should be doing to stay mentally strong during this time. Mm. I suspect there are others listening right now who've had these experiences. Um, I, you know, people who've had these experiences were in a very condensed period of time, a condensed and short space of time. They lose people in their lives who are vitally important to them, loved ones who they're very close, near and dear to. Um, I, I am wondering before we move forward here, whether or not in your twenties, when this happens in a three year span, how you process that? Did you feel like the, the, the cosmos had, had sort of shifted against you? You know, I did. And it was sort of eerie. Like the, if you get down to the details, like I was at a basketball game the night before my mom died. And then a few years later, I'm at the same auditorium and, and the night before my husband died. And so all these people are like, I think the auditorium is cursed or mm. how could it be that it was, it was the three year anniversary of the day my mom died to the day that my husband died. And so people would say, like, do you think that's a coincidence? Like, how could this possibly happen? And, you know, I, I really had to 
spend a lot of time like, okay, what, what is this and how do I deal with this? And knowing that our tendency is to avoid grief. We don't want to be in pain, but that grief is the process by which we heal, that you have to go through a lot of painful things and question a lot of things and work on yourself and what your bigger beliefs are in the world. And I didn't want to do all that, but it was forced upon me, I guess, to sort of figure that out because I didn't want to just sort of brush it off, move forward or pretend I wasn't in pain because I saw what happened when people did that. They'd come into my therapy office 10 or 20 years after they lost somebody and they were still like waiting for life to get better or they were bitter sometimes because they'd never really healed from it. Mm. I know, and uh, you know it better than I do because you're a therapist, that people don't close on the death of loved ones like we close on homes. Um, but I hear your point about people coming into your office 10, 20 years later, still wrestling with the pain of that loss. I'll talk about that in this hour. Uh, Amy has written a number of books, um, but there is one in particular that I want to kind of delve into today that I think will benefit and help all of us. Uh, this one's called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. 13 Things Mentally Strong People Do Not Do. Take back your power, embrace change, face your fears, and train your brain for happiness and success. That's a lot, um, but I want to walk through some of those 13 things in this hour. This book is so successful, it has been translated now into more than 40 languages around the world, an international bestseller. So if anybody can help you train your brain uh, for happiness and success and tell us about the things that mentally strong people do and don't do, it is Amy Moran, and I'm glad to have her on this program. Glad to have her in this hour. More with Amy when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Amy Marin is our guest in this hour. She is a uh, psychotherapist uh, who learned, as we all do at some point in life, that you can talk about things, you can read about things, you can be an expert in uh, a particular thing. But when it happens to you, it fundamentally changes the way you see the world the way you see that thing that you are an expert in. That's exactly what happened to her. Uh, here she is, a psychotherapist, and uh, just getting started in her career. And at 23, she loses her mother. Three years later to the day, she loses her husband. Uh, and that fundamentally changes uh, her her world. Um, Amy, let me go back to that story before we move forward here and try to help others with what you've learned over the years, and uh, not just because of your own personal experience, but obviously counseling people and talking to people and researching these texts these uh, texts you've written about uh, how we can be more mentally strong. Um, when that happened in that three-year period, um, what was the what was the impact of it on you personally? Did it did it did it turn your world upside down? Did you have to sit down for a while? I mean, how, how did it impact you? Oh yeah, so many ways. So, as a therapist, shortly after my husband passed away, I thought, how do I go to work now and help people deal with their problems? Like, my heart is broken. I can't even function. So I was able to take a couple weeks off. I could tap into some short-term disability benefits. My doctor was like, yeah, you qualify for depression. Not a problem. We'll <laughs> help with that. So I was fortunate. I was able to take a couple of months off from work. Not that three months was enough to heal, but it was enough to at least get some practical affairs in order and that sort of a thing. And then I really had to figure out what do I want to do with my life? What kind of goals did we have together that maybe I no longer want to pursue? My husband and I had become foster parents. And I had to decide, do I want to be a single foster mom or do, is that something I want to give up? I eventually went back to it and did become a foster mom as a, as a single person later on, but I took a break from it for a while. 
and so many other just practical decisions in terms of what was I going to do? Where was I going to live? I decided to stay in the house that we had bought together, but because I was down to one income, I had to take on some extra jobs to do that. So there was a lot of that kind of shuffling and figuring things out and then deciding what's my new normal in life going to look like? Who am I going to be? And now that I am a 26-year-old widow, it was at a time where other people I knew were just getting married and starting to talk about kids. And here I was like, oh, now who am I? There's everybody else I know who's widowed is, say, 80. Mm -hmm. And here I am at 26. Where do I fit in and how do I still uh, figure all of this out? So it took, I mean, years before I really got to a place where I felt like I had uh, created this new life for myself and figured out how do I move forward? Like you said earlier, we don't really have closure. You don't really move on, but you mm -hmm. can figure out how do I move forward when you lose somebody. Yeah, we'll talk about moving forward uh, later in this hour. Um, I, I, it, it seems to me that when you're that young and something that catastrophic happens to you, in your case, you know, mother and husband, when something that uh, that catastrophic happens to you so early in life, it seems to me there are a number of responses. But certainly of those responses, two things stand out for me right now. Uh, when you're that young, you either grow up really, really fast. You grow up, you mature and you grow up really fast in moments like the like like these or those. Or you, you you can't handle it, and you end up engaging in sort of adolescent behavior. Um, um, what say you about what happens to people when they are confronted with situations like these so early in life? Oh, you know, you hit the nail on the head that we have options, and we sort of it's common for us to turn to sort of our primitive coping strategies of how do I get through this, and when the people that probably gave you the most emotional support once upon a time are no longer people you can rely on. It leaves us up in the air. So I know from my therapy office, I saw so many people who turned to unhealthy things like alcohol to cope. And it was easy to see why that would be so tempting or mm -hmm. how we would develop these unhealthy habits or people that say, you know, I'm just going to uh, try to pretend this didn't happen, uh, smooth over my pain and maybe I'll start dating right away or I'm going to go out there and do these wild things that maybe I'd never done before. And for me, I did at least those sorts of things in a safer way. Like I got a motorcycle and a motorcycle license and that was, gave me something to do. So if after work or on the weekends, I wanted to go do something, I could drive my motorcycle, but it didn't cause me any harm, but it was a way to say, yeah, I'm going to kind of like reinvent this new portion of my life. But mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy to see why sometimes people would reach for unhealthier habits to help them get through it, too. Yeah. Since you mentioned the option to date right away, let me ask you a personal question in just a second. How, in fact, you did navigate through that process of losing your husband at 26, three years to the day after losing your mother. And let me, before I ask that question, share a quick story. So earlier this week, as you know, and the audience knows, we celebrated, commemorated uh, the uh, legacy and life of MLK. Monday was uh, uh, the National King holiday. Um, I regard Dr. King as the greatest American this country has ever produced. This country, uh, this this audience rather, knows that. Uh, I wrote a book about Dr. King, a New York Times bestselling book about the last year of his life called Death of a King. So Dr. King is my guy. Uh, and over the years, uh, I've had a chance to, you know, not just know his family, but become a sort of a member of their family. His, his four children, now three still living, are, are personal and dear friends of mine. Coretta Scott King, his his widow, Speaking of widows, was a dear friend of mine. We hung out and had dinners together, and we she we sat for interviews. Uh, she did sat for any number of interviews with me over the course of her of her life and our friendship. And her very last national television interview was with me. Uh, so her very last sit down was with me. I flew to Atlanta, 
And we sat for a conversation in the Ebenezer Baptist Church where President Joe Biden spoke just last Sunday, first sitting president to speak at Ebenezer for a Sunday morning sermon. I've been there many times over the years. And so I convinced Mrs. King to sit for me, sit with me for a conversation inside of Ebenezer in the pulpit where Dr. King preached. The new Ebenezer is right across the street. That's where President Biden spoke on Sunday. But the original Ebenezer is on the other side of the street. And so we are seated, seated. They, they move some things out of the way. And so she and I are seated in the very spot where Dr. King stood and preached every Sunday morning for years, co-pastoring Ebenezer with his father, Daddy King. So that's the setting. So we're in Ebenezer. The place is packed. People are standing around the walls. The main floor is filled. The balcony is filled. It's a great conversation that we're recording for national television. And as long as I'd known her, as well as I knew her, I'd never asked her this question. And so <laughs> I don't know what possessed me to ask it this day, but here we are live on national television. <laughs> and I lean in and say, Mrs. King, I, I've, I've never asked you this. And I saw her right eyebrow sort of raise up like, <laughs> where, where are we going with this, Tavis? I said, I've never asked you this, but why after all these years of Dr. King's passing, did you never remarry? I said, to my knowledge, I don't even know that she dated anybody, but you certainly never remarried. Why, after all these years, have you never remarried? And she sat there, Amy, and she looked at me. <laughs> she stared at me and she says to me, uh, Tavis, let me ask you this first. Why you ain't never been married? <laughs> and the whole church went up. It just, it, it went up, and if you Google that, if you Google Tavis and Coretta Scott King, it's all over the internet. It's been seen by millions of people. You can see it. But it was a moment, and I, I mean, I completely blushed. I'm a black man, obviously, but I blushed. And it when I say the church went up, I mean, it was a, an extended, extended <laughs> uh, bit of laughter because here here is Tavis Smiley being one-upped by Coretta Scott King. And people didn't know she had that kind of sense of humor. So she just went right at me. So I got what I asked for. She eventually answered the question. And what she said was that she and Dr. King had been partners in life and in love uh, and in their work and witness. And her responsibility after he died immediately was to take care of their four children. And then her responsibility on top of that was to make sure his legacy was protected. And she went to work building the King Center in Atlanta and uh, raised a lot of money to do that. Credit Scott King built that center uh, uh, in homage uh, to her husband uh, and then just doing the work of keeping his legacy alive. And then she and Stevie Wonder got together and went to work to make sure we got the King holiday established. So she had her she had her work cut out for her. And so she just never got back, got back around to really dating and certainly didn't think um, after being married to Dr. King <laughs> that there was anybody else that would step in those shoes. So she never remarried. That's a little, a little funny story about what happens when people lose loved ones. And remember, remember now, they're only in their 30s. King is 39 and he's assassinated. So they're a little bit older than you were when you lost your husband. Uh, but there are a lot of people listening, I suspect, right now who have lost loved ones. I mean, that is to say partners, you know, husbands, wives, partners. Um, and there is this question about what you do next. So all that said, what did Amy Marin do next? Well, in terms of dating, I remember people asking me that question, like sort of once I reached the six-month mark and then the one-year mark after my husband passed away where they'd say, so what do you think? And some people would say things like, oh, you're so lucky, you know you'll get remarried again because you're young enough. And I remember at first sort of being taken aback by that comment because I had no desire to get remarried. The thought of dating anybody was not on my radar. And it took years. It was about four years later, I guess, that I that I 
did start to date, but I ended up, I'm remarried now, but I ended up marrying somebody that I had known for a very long time. And so I didn't have to go through the awkward conversation early mm-hmm. on about, well, actually I'm widowed and, <laughs> and trying to explain to somebody what that meant. He already knew what he was getting into, which meant my first husband's family and I are still very close to this day. So I was like, well, you know, it's kind of a package deal. You're going to inherit the nieces and nephews that I have from my first husband. And spend a lot of time with his family and he was okay with that. And mm. so for me, that seemed natural at that moment in order to say, yeah, it's, it's okay to, to date again. But otherwise I was just, I couldn't imagine it. People that are using dating apps and getting out there and, and dating my hats off to them for me at that time in my life, I was not there. And it took a while before I felt like I was ready. And I didn't want to start dating too soon just because I was lonely or just because uh, I wanted to get rid of the pain. I wanted to make sure that I felt like I was a healthy, okay person before I jumped into the dating pool again. Yep. That makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, and there's no, um, I think you and I both agree. There's no one size fits all in that regard, right? I mean, people have to do what, what feels right for them. So, um, what felt right for Coretta Scott King was what she did or didn't do. What felt right for you happened four years later. I get it again. No, 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 um, no, uh, user manual really when it comes to having to navigate through that kind of loss again, particularly so early in life. Let me ask you this quick question. And on the other side of news, traffic and sports, we'll delve into these things, these 13 things that mentally strong people don't do and help this audience learn back, learn, uh, today how to take back their power, how to embrace change, how to face their fears and how to train their brain, um, for happiness and success. Here's my quick question though, before news, traffic and sports. You're talking right now to a, a significant audience of people of color. Um, uh, everybody listens to this program across the nation, but they're certainly, uh, given uh, what we do and who I am and what I do and what I've done in my career, a lot of people of color tuned in right now. And I raise that because people of color in particular have to put up with a lot of stuff, a lot of mess in this country. Uh, being black ain't easy. Uh, being brown ain't easy. Being a woman, of course, ain't easy. These are difficult uh, journeys that we have to navigate every single day. And it, it occurs to me that part of being mentally strong for people of color means having to deal with the mess that you are already subjected to just because of the melanin in your skin. But then life comes at you in a variety of other ways. I mean, there's nothing you can do about the fact that you're born in black or brown skin. And you got to deal with all that crap that comes with that just because of your skin color. And then here comes Amy saying, well, these are the things that you can do to be mentally strong, to take back your power, to face your fears, to embrace change, et cetera, et cetera. But Amy doesn't know what I'm already dealing with every day. When I, when I get out of the bed, when I step out the house, the world comes at me a different way than it comes at Amy because I happen to be a person of color. And then on, on top of all that, I'm supposed to be mentally strong. How do I do that? Uh, anyway. I'm out of time. Let me do news and traffic and sports. We'll come right back to that notion first, and then we'll delve into these things that all of us can do uh, to make ourselves mentally stronger as we move through this year. Our guest is Amy Marin. I'm honored to have her on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate meets a scholarly match. Our guest in this hour is Amy Amy Marin. I am Tavis Smiley. You are listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. Just before news, traffic, and sports, I had a chance to tee up a question for Amy that I want to give her a chance to uh, to respond to, and then we will jump from there. Um, in case you've just tuned in, we're talking in this hour about how to be mentally strong. Uh, mental strength is our subject um, in this hour. Amy's written a number of uh, best-selling books. 
Uh, one became a huge international bestseller. It's called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Take back your power, embrace change, face your fears, and train your brain for happiness and success. As we are still in the month of January, we're doing everything we can to try to get you ready to, to maximize the moment that is 2023 uh, to make the most of this particular year. So throughout this month, we're still uh, building on uh, what we did on the very first day of this year when we were back to work here at KBLA Talk 1580, trying to give you uh, some stuff that you can use this year uh, that will allow you to be better off in December of 23 than you were in December of 2022. Uh, and so delighted to have Amy in uh, in this hour talking about how to be mentally strong. Uh, again, in case you've just tuned in, she ought to know when she was 23, she lost her mother. And three years later to the day, she lost her husband at 26. Uh, she had just started her uh, practice as a psychotherapist, and so she had to uh, deal with this stuff on a personal level, not just uh, talking to clients every day who are coming into her office. Uh, and so if anybody has an insight uh, on this, uh, Amy does, hence uh, our delight at having her on as our guest in this hour. That book, by the way, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, has been translated into more than 40 languages around the world, so it is a true international bestseller. So, Amy, before we get into some of these things that, that we can do to make ourselves more uh, mentally strong this year, I, I, I posited this notion that people of color have to deal with just being people of color every day. And then on top of that, we're supposed to be mentally strong. What say you about that reality? Yeah, I talk a lot about the internal forces that we can do to make ourselves mentally stronger. But I also talk about the environment. It makes a huge difference where you are, how people around you treat you the uh, oppression problems you face, if you don't feel physically safe, emotionally safe, it's obviously really tough to be mentally strong. You can change the way you think, you can change the actions that you take, but it's all complicating factors. And I don't want to pretend like no matter what, you can be uh, more mentally strong just by changing the way you think. Sometimes we have to say, yeah, let's take a look at the reality of the environment that we live in and what are those factors some of them you can change some of them you might not feel like you have the power to change but just recognizing and acknowledging that is definitely important yeah one last question um before i move into these uh, 13 things um you mentioned that in your practice you see people routinely who come in 10 20 years later still uh, still dealing with still processing the pain of loss uh the loss of a of a loved one what do, what do you say to those clients when they come in and they're a decade or two in uh, and still dealing with the pain of losing a husband, a wife, or somebody they cared about so deeply? Yeah, you know, some people are still grieving in a healthy way, but some people haven't even started grieving yet because they bought into that notion that time heals everything. So they kind of moved on with their lives, distracted themselves as much as they could, just waiting, like, someday I'll feel better. And then they realized, well, it's not time that heals, it's what you do with your time. And so mm. sometimes people would come into therapy 10 or 20 years later, asking, like, how come I don't feel any better yet? And the bad news was, for some of them, they just hadn't really started dealing with their pain yet, and they had to turn around and face it rather than spend all this time running from it. Yep. Every day on this program, as this audience knows, I'm always writing down, jotting down things that I hold on to um, beyond the three-hour show that I host every day, and, and I'm always looking for those, uh, those, those nuggets when I come in. And I got my first one in this hour. Um, you just heard Amy say something. That is counterintuitive, uh, really not counterintuitive, but it, it is uh, a tweak, an adjustment, really a 180 <laughs> on what we are typically taught. Uh, we are told all the time, you've heard it a thousand times, that time heals all wounds. 
I've even said it. We've all said it to somebody who we're trying to comfort that time heals all wounds. Amy just turned that on its head. It's not true. Time does not heal all wounds. What you do with your time can help heal your wounds. What you do with the time. But time itself, as Dr. King would like to say, is neutral. Time is neutral. Uh, it's what we do with our time. So uh, there you have a nugget that I heard. I hope you heard it as well. The time does not heal all wounds. What we do with our time is what may help us to heal the wounds that we uh, are inevitably going to have to deal with uh, as long as we are humans living on this particular planet. That said, uh, thank you for that nugget, Amy. Um, let me jump into some of these 13 things. Um, I, I love the book because it, it lays it out in such a way that anybody can understand and, and sort of delve into. Um, I don't want to uh, jump in front of you and tell you the ones that we should talk about, but we got we got some time left in this hour, about 15 minutes or so. Um, I wonder if we could just run through a few of those and I'll, I'll, I'll follow your lead. So where do you want to begin with uh, any of these 13 things that mentally strong people don't do? Let's start with the first thing on the list, which is that they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. If that's mm. all right with you. Yeah, go, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm following you. Take it away, Amy. So, well, and to explain the backstory of how this list came to be was um, shortly after I got remarried, my father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember thinking like, wow, something good finally happened. I get remarried. And then we were facing uh, my father-in-law's pretty grim prognosis. Mm. And that's where I was. I start feeling sorry for myself because I'm thinking... When something good happens, the other shoe drops, and here I am. I've just spent the last decade of my life grieving, and now I have to grieve some more. And it was like in that moment, I was like, nope, if I've learned anything from all of this, it's that feeling sorry for myself isn't helpful. And we know that being sad is healthy, and that can help you honor something that you lost. But sometimes that crosses over into self-pity when we start to think, oh, my problems are so big, nobody understands. There's mm -hmm. nothing I can do about it. And that's when it keeps us stuck. It like gives us an excuse to say, I don't need to do anything differently. I, don't, I shouldn't have to manage my feelings. Uh, I can just kind of wallow for a while. That's when it becomes unhealthy for us is to stay stuck in that place of pain. And so that's why that tops my list, because that's what I was tempted to do right in that moment myself. Mm -hmm. What is this? This is a, a pretty elementary question, but let me ask it anyway. What is the option? What is your suggestion for what to do? instead of feeling sorry for yourself, wasting that kind of time? Yeah, when we feel sorry for ourselves, we're thinking like, I deserve better. I deserve so many more things in life, or I'm a good person, so therefore I deserve to have good things happen. And the antidote is really when you start to then practice a little gratitude. Like, mm. yeah, you know, I still have a pretty, a pretty okay life. I have clean water to drink and air to breathe and I have um, health and I feel okay today and the sun is shining, whatever it is. But Gratitude can be a wonderful antidote. Asking just being kind to somebody, taking some kind of action. When we get stuck in that place of self-pity, we just want to sit on the couch and not go anywhere and not talk to anyone and not do anything. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, like we can always do something to make our lives or somebody else's life a little bit better, but you got to get up and go do something. Even when you don't feel like it, sometimes that's hard to do. When you say, I'm going to smile, I'm going to call somebody, I'm going to... Uh, get outside and, and do something. But if you push yourself to do those things, it makes self-pity much less likely. Yeah. Um, I say all the time, speaking of gratitude, that gratitude, as I see it, is the gateway to greatness. Gratitude is the gateway to greatness in life. If you would be great uh, in whatever your pursuits are, you have to uh, start with gratitude. And so I'm a big fan of um, being grateful. Uh, people ask me all the time, Tavis, how are you? And, I, and people stop me sometimes and they will comment um, when they meet me or see me somewhere out in public. And they'll say, I love when you say, 
Uh, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I said, yeah, that's not just a line. I say it all the time. People ask me, how are you today on the air? I say, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I mean that sincerely uh, because every day I wake up, uh, I'm just grateful to be alive. And uh, when you've been through a few things in life and you're back on your feet and trying to make things happen, you're just grateful. So I say all the time that gratitude is the gateway to greatness. And I, I believe that sincerely. And that's why I say every day. That if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. That's what I mean by that when I when I use that phrase. Um, I'm wondering if you can draw a link between people who do feel sorry for themselves and self-medication. I, I don't know necessarily what it is that leads people to do that, but I would think, I'm not an expert, this is not my lane, that a lot of what um, people end up relying on vis-a-vis self-medication uh, when they go through crises like this starts with this notion of feeling sorry for themselves. Have you noticed a link between those two things in your practice? Oh, you hit the nail on the head again. Yes, absolutely. That when people will say, you know, I, I just I can't get out of this mess. This isn't my fault. And they feel like they're just a real victim of their circumstances. They're much more likely to say reach for drugs or alcohol or something else unhealthy to keep them stuck. And then you're in this vicious cycle. So let's say you start drinking too too much and too often. It's almost like then you have to create misery on the outside to justify your actions and to line up with how terrible you feel on the inside. And so people will do these self-destructive things. Sometimes they don't even realize they're doing it or they're not doing it on purpose, but it becomes a really tough cycle to break. And they definitely are linked. Yeah. I just want to run through a few of these. Again, they're a list of 13. I never want to do all 13 because I want to sell more books for you. So I want folks to go <laughs> and get the book uh, to get all the rest of them. But I do want to run through a few of these. Um, that's the first one. Uh, don't waste time feeling sorry for yourselves. Grab another one, Amy Morin. Um, let's talk about, um, not wasting energy on things that they can't control. Mm, yes. There's so many things in life that are completely out of our control, but if we're not careful, we'll waste our energy on them. Whether we are worried about if somebody else is going to change their behavior, you can't control anybody else. You can control how you respond to them, but you can't make them change their behavior. Or we focus so much on external things, again, that are outside of our control. Let's take New Year's resolutions or people's goal for the year. Somebody might say, my goal is to get promoted at my job. Well, you actually can't force your boss to promote you. So a better goal is to say, my goal this year is to go to three networking meetings a month or I'm going to work, I don't know, I'm going to do my best at my job every day that I'm there to come up with something that you can control or to say, you know, I'm going to be really healthy this year. That's kind of meaningless. So what are you going to do? And it might be, I'm going to go for a walk three times a week for 20 minutes. You can control those things. And it really empowers us. Like, it's kind of scary at first when you realize all the things you don't have control over. But when you focus on the things that you can control, it just empowers you to say, all right, I'm in control of how I think, how I feel, how I behave, how I spend my time, and who I spend my time with. Mm. I love it. I love it. Um, we all have to learn that lesson sometimes the hard way. And sometimes it takes us a long time to learn these lessons. And some of us learn these lessons perennially, right, <laughs> over and over and over again, that there are so many things in life that we cannot control. Why waste our energy on that? That's just two of the things on this list of 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. I want to be mentally stronger this year. How about you? Uh, if you do, stick around a little bit more with Amy Wren when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now, we got time for a couple more of these, uh, Amy. Uh, between now and the top of the hour, um, talking about um, thirteen things mentally strong people don't do: take back your power, embrace change, face your fears, and train your brain 
for happiness and success. Uh, we thought we would uh, get Amy uh, uh, Morin in here at the beginning of the year to help us, uh, again, make the most of the months that are to come. Um, Amy, you mentioned a moment ago New Year's resolutions. Um, and I had uh, the great motivator, Les Brown, on this program uh, some weeks back, when the, a couple weeks back when the year started. Uh, and Les's take on that, I asked him about New Year's resolutions. Les said, I don't talk about New Year's resolution. I talk about New Year evolution. And so he said uh, uh, that was his framework, and he uh, sort of unpacked what he meant by that. But uh, when, when you um, uh, hear people talk about what they intend to do in the new year, they've made these resolutions. From the standpoint of your work about being mentally strong and overcoming and achieving, how do you process people who uh, you know, think that beginning of the year is the, is the appropriate time to set these New Year's resolutions in place? Well, a lot of people will set a resolution just because it's the date on the calendar. So they'll say, like, this is finally the year I'm going to change my habits. But they don't really spend enough time preparing or getting ready. So I always tell people, you don't have to change on January 1st. Maybe you give it another month to say, okay, if I'm going to make these changes to my schedule, to my behavior, how do I get ready to do that? Because when people are ill-prepared, they just make a resolution, I'm going to eat healthier this year, I'm going to save a lot more money, but they don't have a plan for how they're going to do it. It doesn't work, and that's why we know most resolutions fall by the wayside by by today, actually, January 19th, almost everybody's quit their resolution already. Mm. And so, and it's because we set these giant goals of I'm going to pay off my car by the end of the year, but you don't have a plan of how you're going to do it. So I always encourage people set short-term goals. Like, what are you going to do every week to work on your goal? Like go for that walk three times a week, or I'm going to save $50 or whatever it might be. But we do much better when we have short-term goals and we know what do I do today to get one step closer to that giant goal that I want to reach by the end of the year. Yep. You mentioned the 19th. That is the date on, that is the date on today's calendar. Um, what have you learned in your, uh, again, in your work around notions of how we become mentally stronger people? What have you learned about that so-called 21 day habit rule that if you do something for 21 <laughs> days, it becomes a habit. Is, is there truth to that? There is not. So when they research people in habit changes, they find it really depends. Like if I wanted to get in the habit of eating a jelly donut every day, I guarantee it's going to take me about two days to get into that habit. And it would be a problem. <laughs> However, if I wanted to make a major change in my life, it might take me 10 years to make it a habit. Yeah. So when you really think about it, like it doesn't make sense. So it really depends on how big of a change it is, how challenging it is for us. And everybody's different. Yeah, my fr my first good laugh of the day, the jelly donut. Yeah, it would take me about it take me about 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 two minutes, not two, not even two right. days, <laughs> to get into the habit of eating a jelly donut every day. But I digress on that issue. In our remaining moments with Amy, we'll get one or two more of these uh, uh, quick bites um, uh, from this book: Thirteen Things Mentally Strong People Do Not Do. You're listening to KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Amy, we got about three minutes left in this hour. Amy Morin, let me see if we can squeeze in one more of these things. We've given two. Let's try to get one more. That'd be three. Nice little uh, 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 trifecta there. 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Give me one more, Amy. Uh, how about they don't fear taking calculated risk? Yes. Because the truth is, we're really bad at calculating risk. Like if somebody said, to most people, obviously, Tavis, you don't have a fear of public speaking. But to most people, if you said, hey, you're going to take an Uber, go 10 miles down the road, and you're going to give a speech to 100 people, most people would find getting on stage in front of 100 people to be super scary. But almost nobody would find the Uber ride scary. And then you think, well, 
what's actually a bigger risk? There's a much bigger chance of death when you get in an Uber to go give a speech than there is that you're going to die on stage. Mm. Yet we think of something like public speaking as being really scary, so we think it must be really risky, and we turn down those opportunities. So it's important to really evaluate. Just because something feels scary, ask yourself, is it actually risky? And sometimes facing your fears is the best thing you can do. What, what, what have you learned about, uh, about calculating risk in your work over the years? Um, you know, just that, that we tend to calculate them based on some really irrational things, like how scary does it feel? Or how often do I take this risk? Because a lot of people say get in a car every day, they don't find getting behind the wheel to be scary. But it is risky compared to a lot of other things we do. Or sometimes we're afraid of airplane rides, even though statistically, there's little chance of of an airplane going down. And so it's important sometimes just to factor in more logic than we do, because as our emotions go up, our logic goes down, and then we get um, really confused about how to accurately calculate a risk. Yeah. Uh, we said earlier in this hour that um, you, you don't close on the death of a loved one like you close. I'm, I'm bringing this thing full circle now. We started this hour in case you tuned in late talking to Amy about how she uh, had to personally deal with this notion of building her own mental muscles. When at 23, she loses her mom. Three years later to the day, she loses her husband. Again, she's got to get her own mental muscles uh, uh, together and increase her own mental strength. Um, so she's not just talking to clients anymore. Now it's real world for her, a uh, real world in real time. And so I, we established early in this conversation that you don't close on the death of a loved one. Like you close on a house. Uh, no doubt about that. But there's also uh, a great song that comes to mind. The song is called come ye disconsolate, come ye disconsolate. And the line, the song says that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal that earth has no sorrow, that heaven cannot heal. That's for those of us who happen to be believers. I raise that only because I'm wondering uh, these years later, after losing your mom at 23, your husband at 26, you've gotten remarried, your practice is thriving, you're an internationally best-selling author. Have things turned out the way you thought they might uh, those years ago, Amy? I definitely, they turned out in a way I would have never imagined. They're beyond my wildest dreams. I went from being a therapist in rural Maine to now I get to live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Mm -hmm. I'm the editor-in-chief of the biggest mental health website in the world. I get to write books and give speeches to lots of people and do fun things like talk to you. Never would have imagined it. That life turned out better than I could have even hoped for. Before I let you go, pump the website. Go ahead. Take it away. Uh, Verywellmind.com is where I'm the editor-in-chief, the biggest mental health website in the world. And my personal website is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in licensed clinical social worker.com. There you go. That's how you get a hold of Amy Morin. But if you don't get a hold of her, you can certainly find her book everywhere. It's called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Take back your power, embrace change, face your fears, and train your brain for happiness and success, all the stuff that we all should want to do at the beginning of this year and beyond. Amy, what a great delight. Uh, I expected this, but uh, it, it, it exceeded my expectations. So what a great delight to talk to you for the hour. Thank you for the time stepping away from the sailboat to talk to us. I appreciate it. You can return to your business as usual. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Uh, more of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.